like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. How do you deal with guilt? You know, our society likes to view guilt as kind of a bad hangover from our Puritan past. And the mentality with many people is if we can just throw out religion, then we'll throw out guilt. And I think that's modeled many times by movie stars and celebrities who publicly boast about their shameful deeds and seeming to be at the same time guilt-free and happy-go-lucky. Like their biggest complaint seems to be with self-righteous, judgmental Christians who won't accept their, quote, alternative lifestyle or their freedom of expression or their shortcomings or whatever they prefer to call them. But you know, in spite of all the efforts to suppress or deny guilt, the reality is that people are still guilty. Years ago, psychologist Eric Fromm made this observation in his book, The Sane Society. He said, quote, It is indeed amazing that in as fundamentally irreligious a culture as ours, the sense of guilt should be so widespread and deep-rooted as it is. In other words, in spite of man's attempt to throw religion out, he can't get rid of guilt. And the Bible has the answer for that. It tells us that guilt is not a feeling. Guilt is judicial. Guilt is our moral culpability as we stand before a holy God. And He has sentenced us to our rightful sentence, which is the eternal death penalty. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 3 that we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I saw a cartoon recently that hits the nail on the head. It showed a psychologist saying to his patient, Mr. Figby, I think I can explain your feelings of guilt. You are guilty. So, you know, thankfully, the Bible also declares that God has provided a remedy for our guilt. And it is vital that we understand and apply that remedy to our lives personally. And we're going to see that remedy unfold in our passage this morning. We're going to see a contrast between the remedy under the old covenant and the remedy under the new covenant. Now, in chapter 7 of Hebrews, we're told that Jesus Christ is our high priest with a priesthood superior to the old priesthood. And then in chapter 8, we're told that Jesus Christ brought a new covenant superior to the old covenant. In fact, if you look back in chapter 8 and verse 6, he calls it a better covenant. And in the last verse of chapter 8, he says it is the new covenant, and the first covenant is obsolete, growing old, and ready to disappear. Now, having said that, the question that would come to the Jewish mind would be, well, does that mean that the old covenant was purposeless, useless, bad? And the answer is no. And in chapter 9, he's going to show us that the old covenant was God-given and it had a purpose. Its purpose was to give us a picture of the real. But now that the reality has come, we can put the picture aside. In a couple of weeks, Ricky Stout is coming back from 10 years in the Army, heading back from Germany. Now, I haven't been in his parents' house lately, but if you go in their house, I'm sure they've got pictures of Ricky in their house. But three, year, three weeks from now, if they are sitting over in the corner looking at a picture of Ricky, that's going to be absurd because the reality will be here. That's the way it is with the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a picture of Jesus Christ. And now that the reality has come, we can set the picture aside. And in chapter 9, verses 1 to 14, we're going to see a contrast here between the picture and the reality, between the old and the new, between the shadow and the substance, and particularly how they deal with guilt. And the first point is the shadow, the old covenant. We see that in verses 1 to 10. Notice verse 1. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly 
sanctuary. Now that verse is indicating to us that the first covenant was not of human origin. In fact, it had regulations of divine worship. It came from God and it showed us how to worship God. Now let me stop right there and add a footnote. There are many comparisons in the book of Hebrews. We find Christ compared with the prophets, the angels, Moses, Aaron, Joshua. But what I find interesting is that the writer never denigrates or disparages any of those people. He doesn't say, that lousy Moses isn't as good as Christ. Rather, he magnifies those individuals because when he magnifies those individuals and then he shows us that Jesus is far superior to them, it gives Jesus even greater exaltation. And so here, he doesn't run down the old covenant. He has gracious words about it. He says it was divine. It laid down regulations for worshiping God. But I want you to notice something. He doesn't say it has regulations, present tense. He says it had regulations. You see, it is old. It is past. It is obsolete. And those regulations deal with the earthly sanctuary meaning it is tied to this earth. It was temporal. It was passing. It was just a picture of the true sanctuary that is in heaven. And the verses that follow, he's going to lay out for us some of these regulations. And I've laid them out in your bulletin in terms of the sanctuary, the services, and the significance. And then we're going to see him turn around and do those same three points in reference to the new covenant, first in verses 1 to 10 and then in verses 11 to 14. Let's look first at the sanctuary in verses 2 to 5. He says, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. And he's talking here about the tabernacle. That was the tent in the wilderness that God established. What I find interesting is that if you go back to the Old Testament, you'll find that there are two chapters describing creation. There are 50 chapters describing the tabernacle. That tells me that the tabernacle was important. And sometimes I think as Christians, we don't study it enough. We don't know enough about this. What we find about the tabernacle is that it is a gigantic portrait of Jesus Christ. Now, I did some walking around this room yesterday to try to get my dimensions down, so I'll try to help you with it. The, the tabernacle was 150 feet long and 75 feet wide. Now, that means if you took basically the seating portion of this floor and we could straighten it out into a rectangle, that would be about the size of the tabernacle. And the tabernacle had 15-foot-high walls around it. They were made out of wood. They were portable because the tabernacle had to be portable. But they were 15 feet high, and then it had a linen roof. It was blue and purple and scarlet linen. Now, it's not carefully described. So some people think the roof of the tabernacle was flat. Others think it went up like a tent goes up today. And I tend to think it did that because when you get into the tabernacle, you're going to find that the holy place and the holy of holy places also had a roof on top of them. So here you have these 15-foot high walls around this tabernacle, 150 feet by 75 feet wide, a big, huge tent, if you like, out in the wilderness. And it had one gate on the end. And when the high priest would come through that outer gate, the first piece of furniture that he would come to in the tabernacle was the brazen altar. It was seven and a half feet wide by seven and a half feet long. So it was a square, four and a half feet tall. It was like a big barbecue grill. It had a grate on it. And this was the place where the priest would offer up sacrifices. This is a place that was always a bloody place because there were continual sacrifices going on. In fact, the Bible tells us in Leviticus 6.13 that the fire was to never go out in the brazen altar. 
So he would walk through the tabernacle into the entrance. The first thing he would come to was the brazen altar. Then if he walked past the brazen altar, he would come to the laver. The laver was like a, a, a big bird bath. It was the place where the ceremonial washings would take place. This is where the priest would ceremonially clean, cleanse himself before he would then go into the inner sanctum of the sanctuary. And what he describes for us here is that inner sanctum. It is the holy place and the holy of holy places. This, this part of the tabernacle was 45 feet long by 15 feet wide by 15 feet tall. Now, I did some measuring yesterday. That means that this, this portion went from right here to exactly right over there on the other side of the stage. This is 45 feet. Just, just, just inside these two beams would be 45 feet. And then it was 15 feet wide and 15 feet tall. And when the priest came into this area, he first came in the opening, which was covered by a veil. And the first thing that he came to as he entered the holy place was on his left, there was a lampstand. It was made out of solid gold. It was seven branched, but it wasn't, wasn't a candlestick. It was a lamp stand. These were, these were uh, wicks in oil. And the Bible tells us again that this lamp was to never go out. And so it was constantly supplied with olive oil to keep the light going. And then when he turned to his right, on the right side as he entered, there was a table. And that table was three feet long by one and a half feet wide. It was made out of a of wood and overlaid with gold. And on that table were 12 loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. And every Sabbath day, the priest would come in and replace that bread. And then the priest would eat the old bread, which always made me wonder. It's seven days old, and I hate stale bread. But, but they would replace the bread every Sabbath day, and then the priest would eat that bread. It's called in the Bible the, the bread of presence. And so he would come in this area. On the left was the lampstand. On the right was the table with the showbread. And then he walked up to the, the end of it before the veil, and there was the altar of incense. And the altar of incense was the place where he would go back outside and take coals off the brazen altar, he would bring those coals in, put them on this altar of incense, and then he would put incense on top, and that incense would go up into the presence of the Lord. So it would really fill that 30 by 15 by 15 holy place. That's the holy place. And then he moves to the inner, inner sanctum in verse 3. He says, and behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies. There's a first veil as you enter the holy place, and then there's a second veil, and that second veil entered into the holy of holy places. And that was a, a cube, 15 feet by 15 feet by 15 feet. And what is in the holy of holy places? Look at verse 4. Having a golden altar of incense, and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Inside the Holy of Holy Places, there was a golden altar. Now, that's not really the correct translation here because it's really a golden censer. And that golden censer was only in the Holy of Holy Places one day a year. And that was, according to Leviticus 16, 12 to 13, on the Day of Atonement. That was a fire pan by which the priest would go out to the brazen altar and he would take coals off the brazen altar. He would take them in on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holy Places. He would place that there and he would take two handfuls of incense and put them on that fire pan and the Holy of Holies and the mercy seat would then be covered with a cloud of smoke and fragrance. And then he mentions the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was made out of a K of wood and lined inside and out with gold. It was only three and three quarters feet long two and a quarter feet wide and two and a quarter feet 
eye. You say, well, what was in the ark? He tells us right here. Inside the ark, there was a golden jar with manna. Exodus 16, 32 tells us that. Manna that came down out of heaven in the wilderness when God provided for them. There was Aaron's rod that budded. Now, that tells me Aaron's rod was not very long. But Aaron's rod was in there that budded in the wilderness to show that he was God's man. And then the tablets of the covenant were in there, according to Deuteronomy 10, 1 and 2. That's what was in the ark. And then look at verse 5. It says, And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. On top of this ark, this box, was the mercy seat, was really just the top. And then there were two cherubim designed, one on each side facing the other with their wings spread out across the mercy seat. And this ark, this mercy seat with the cherubim, was the place where God met with man. In fact, he said to Moses in Exodus 25, 22, about the ark and the mercy seat, he says, and there I will meet with you. And so he sketches out this picture for us, and then he says, I really don't have time to go into any details. But that's the sanctuary. And then he moves to the services in verses 6 and 7. Notice verse 6. Now when these things have been thus prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. Numbers chapter 28 and verses 3 and 4 tells us that every day they took two one-year-old lambs and gave sacrifices both morning and at twilight. So every day, even if nobody came to the tabernacle, there were two one-year-old lambs that were sacrificed. And that's besides those individuals who would bring their sacrifices daily to be offered up to the Lord. Daily, they would come into the holy place and they would have to dress the lamps and make sure that that lamp never went out. Daily, they would take coals off the brazen altar, bring them in and put them on the altar of incense and burn incense to the Lord. Weekly, they would have to change the showbread. He says here, continually they were in there serving God day after day after day. And then notice verse 7. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Priests went daily into the holy place, but they never went into the holy of holy places. Only the high priest did that, only alone, only once a year on the Day of Atonement, and not without blood offered for himself and for the people. Now, if you go back to Leviticus chapter 16, you'll find how this worked. It's very fascinating, actually. On the Day of Atonement, the priest would come into the tabernacle, and on that day, no one else was permitted in the tabernacle at all. Everybody else was outside the 15-feet walls, so they really couldn't see what was going on. But he would come in, and he would come to that laver, and he would take off his priestly gowns, and he would ceremonially wash himself, and then he would put on himself a linen tunic, linen underwear, a linen sash, and a linen turban, just for that occasion. And then when he got dressed in those clothes and was ceremonially clean, then he would take a bull. He would take that bull to the brazen altar, and he would kill the bull and offer up the bull on that altar. And then after the, the blood had fallen down on those coals and the brazen altar, then he would take that fire pan that we talked about earlier. And he would take those bloody coals and he would put them in the fire pan. And he would take the fire pan and he would go behind the veil into the holy of holy places and he would put that fire pan down in front of the mercy seat. And he would take two handfuls of incense and put them on it and the cloud would fill the holy of holy places. And then he would come back out and he would take some blood from that bull back out to the brazen altar he would take some blood from that bull. He would come back. He would walk in again into the Holy of Holy Places. He would take that blood, dip his finger in it, and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and then seven times in front of the mercy seat. And then he would come back out. And the Bible tells us that was just preparatory. 
That, that was just to cover the sins of himself and his family. Then he would come back out and he would take two goats and he would cast lots for those two goats. One goat would be for the Lord. The goat that was for the Lord he would take and he would kill. And he would sacrifice that, that goat on the brazen altar. And then he would take the blood from that goat and would come back into the holy of holy places. He would sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat and seven times in front of the mercy seat. Then he would come out into the holy place. And it tells us he would cleanse the holy place by sprinkling blood in the holy place. Then he would come all the way back out to the brazen altar and he would, he would uh, dip, sprinkle the blood on the brazen altar to cleanse the entire tabernacle. Then he would take the other goat. Now we're not told exactly where he was when he did this, but I think that he probably took the other goat and he went back outside the tabernacle where the people were all standing out there. And he laid his hands on the head of that other goat. The other goat is called the scapegoat. He laid his hands on the head of that goat and he announced all the sins of the people that they had committed the previous year. Now, if you notice the end of verse 7, it says the sins they had committed, what? In ignorance. So even under the old covenant, you really didn't cover You know, somebody, if you came to your priest and said, you know, I committed adultery the other day, he would say, why don't we go outside the camp? And his friends would be there with stones and they would stone you to death. That was the law. So really, we're only talking about sins that were done in ignorance under the old covenant. But he would lay his hands on that goat's head and he would announce all the sins of the people that they had committed the previous year. And then a man was assigned to take that goat off into the wilderness and let him go, never to come back. You say, well, why were there two goats? Well, because they really show the two sides of the sacrifice. You see, the goat for the Lord was really for God's justice. That goat was sacrificed. The other goat was for man's conscience. That was to show us that the sins were taken away into the wilderness. And then having done that, the priest would come back out or come back into the tabernacle. He would take off his linen garments. He would wash himself again ceremonially and he would put his priestly attire back on. Now, that's what went on on the Day of Atonement. You say, well, what is the significance? Well, we find that out in verses 8 to 10. Notice verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. Now, you know, if I was writing this, I would want to get into a whole lot of the significance of what's going on here. I would want to tell you that I think the lamp in the holy place where, where they had no windows, the only light in there, was a picture to us of Jesus Christ being the light of the world. I, I think the bread on the showbread is a representation of the fact that Jesus is the bread of life. I think the altar of incense is, is a picture, as we learned in Hebrews, that Jesus makes intercession for us. And even our prayers have to go through Jesus Christ. And what is it that fuels our prayers? It's bloody coals off the brazen altar. Coals that have been hit with the blood of the sacrifice become the, really the foundation for our prayers to come up to God. And when he went into the Holy of Holy Places, he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And what was inside the ark? The law. Those, those, the, the covenant was there. The Ten Commandments were inside there. So he was sprinkling blood on top of the mercy seat so that when God saw the law that they had broken, he first saw the blood to cover that broken law. A lot of significance in the tabernacle. But he only picks out one thing. Notice what he picks out in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. He picks out the fact that there's a veil blocking the way to the presence of God. And he's saying while that tabernacle stands, men are not to get in. Nobody got in there. The people never got in there. The high priest only got in there once a year. And so the message coming through loud and clear as long as that veil was hanging there is keep out. 
You are separated from God. And then notice verse 9. He says, which is a symbol, notice that word, for the time then present, according to which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It was only a symbol, a figure, a parable, a picture of the real. What does he say? It could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It could never free you from guilt. In fact, when we get to chapter 10 and verse 3 of Hebrews, he's going to tell us that all of those sacrifices only reminded the sinner of his sins over and over and over again. And why couldn't they cleanse the conscience? Look at verse 10. Since they relate only to food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Why couldn't they make the conscience clean? Because they were just external. He says they were just food and drinks. They were just sacrifices and libations that were poured out. They were just external washings. They were just regulations for the body. And I love that word, imposed. What does imposed mean? Imposed means when something is laid on you as a burden. That's what it was. It was imposed on the people until what? Until the time of reformation. The time when all things would be set right. So the old covenant couldn't provide access to God. It couldn't make the conscience perfect. It was only external and it was only temporary. It was a shadow. But then we come to the substance in verses 11 to 14. And there are certain words in Scripture that you love. Look at the beginning of verse 11. It says, but when Christ appeared. We're talking about the shadow. We're talking about its limitations. But when Christ appeared. Now he's going to move to the substance. And we're going to see those same three points here. First of all, the sanctuary in verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. What do we know about His sanctuary under the new covenant? It is greater, it is more perfect, and it is heavenly. Jesus, our high priest, takes us into the very throne room of God. In fact, the Bible tells me in the New Testament that spiritually speaking, I am already in the presence of God and I will always be there. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 6 says we are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. And in fact, I already live in the heavenlies. You say, well, Dan, I thought you lived over on Saddlegate. No, my body hangs out there. But spiritually, I am already with Christ, in Christ, seated with Him in His throne room in heaven on His throne. That's an exciting thing. He is a high priest who ministers not in some earthly tabernacle with a veil. He is in the very presence of God Almighty. And then secondly, we see the services in verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood, He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Why is Jesus' service better? Well, the old covenant high priest took animal blood. Jesus took His own blood. The high priest under the old covenant did it every year. Jesus did it once. The high priest under the Old Covenant provided a temporary solution. Jesus provides eternal redemption. His service is greater under the New Covenant. And then thirdly, we see the significance in verses 13 and 14. And this is what he wants to get to. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. If animal blood could cleanse ceremonially, if animal blood could purify the flesh, if it could clean you on the outside... Then, notice verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? 
If the blood of dumb animals under a shadowy covenant could clean you on the outside, then how much more shall the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience, clean you on the inside, and free you from all guilt? And notice that phrase, through the eternal spirit. That may refer to the Holy Spirit. If so, then he's saying that the Holy Spirit was enabling Christ to offer himself as a sacrifice to the Father. That would mean that all three members of the Godhead are mentioned in this process and were active at Calvary. Or it may be referring to Christ's spirit, which if you take that in conjunction with the phrase without blemish, it's telling us that Jesus was uniquely qualified. In his person, he was the eternal God. In his character, he was absolutely pure. And what did his sacrifice accomplish? Notice again, it cleanses your conscience from dead works. It cleans you on the inside from works that bring death. What are dead works? Dead works are evil works or religious works done in your power, your strength, your flesh. It includes everything you try to do to please God or not please God. It cleanses us from all dead works. You see, the old covenant could change you on the outside. The new covenant can change you on the inside. The old covenant says if anyone does the sacrifices, he is a cleaned up old creature. The new covenant says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. I can stand before you today and tell you about myself. Now, I know myself better than anyone else knows me. And I'll be honest with you, most of what I know about myself I don't like. But I can stand before you today, and there are things that I have done that I would not share with you in this setting. But I can stand before you today and tell you that my conscience is clear. I am guilt-free. And why is that? It's because it says in verse 14, the blood of Christ. It's all because of the blood of Christ. The old covenant, the sanctuary was earthly and the veil was blocking the way. The services were just animal sacrifices. The significance was the way is not open. It can't make the worshiper perfect. It's only external. But when we come to the new covenant, we find the sanctuary is greater, more perfect. It's heavenly. The services are Christ's blood offered once. And the significance is the way is open for eternal redemption and to have your conscience cleansed. The old covenant is the shadow. The new covenant is the substance because the reality is here. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the scapegoat who takes our sin away, never to reappear. And so the question I would ask you this morning is, are you trusting in his sacrifice? Have you laid your sins on him and let him take them away? You see, that is God's remedy for guilt. In fact, let me add this. You can throw out religion in the sense of rituals and regulations and outward observances and dead works because religion is just a picture. It's just a shadow. But as you throw out religion, you have to enter a relationship with Jesus Christ where he makes you a new creature inwardly, where he cleanses your conscience inwardly, where he says in the words of chapter 8 and verse 12, I will remember their sins no more. You say, well, Dan, how does it look if I throw out the regulations? How is my life going to look if I'm, if I'm throwing out religion? Does that mean I'll sin all the time? No. What does it say at the end of verse 14? I am free in conscience now to serve the living God. And I boil it down to this. Because as Christians, we are guilt-free. But you know what I find many Christians do? 
they take the guilt back on themselves and they hang on to it. Let, let me boil it down to this. Guilt happens when I'm looking at me and my inadequacy. Guilt goes away when I'm looking at Jesus and His sufficiency. You see, there is no way that I can dig out of the hole that I'm in when it comes to guilt and sin before God. What I have to do is humbly accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He laid Himself on the altar for you and me. And I have to trust in His sacrifice completely. When I'm looking at me, I'm going to find guilt. When I'm looking at Him, I'm going to be guilt-free. And so as we close our service today, I'm going to ask us to do that. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back. And I'm going to ask us to close our service by focusing on Jesus. In the words of this song again, let's say to Him, You are beautiful. Let's not look at ourselves and our guilt and our frustrations and our past. Let's look at Jesus and what He has accomplished for us today. And let's worship Him in closing. I'm going to ask you to stand as you do that. If there are those here and you're not sure about your relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm going to invite you to come forward today. I'd love to sit down and talk with you about how you can come into a relationship with Jesus Christ today. There may be others here who want to join this fellowship. You come as we sing as well. Let's sing this and mean this before the Lord. Amen. I'd ask you to be seated for just a moment. I'd like to uh, introduce to you Randy and Laura Graham. They have come this morning to join our fellowship, and, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to meet them if you haven't and encourage them if you have. And uh, I'm going to ask uh, Bill Ringfield to nudge him, yeah, to, to get up and, and to lead them out to the lobby, and then I'll give you an opportunity after we close in prayer to uh, greet and encourage the Grahams. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful today for your word. It's hard for us to even comprehend what it would be like to live under the Old Covenant. Many of us would be taken outside the camp and stoned to death because of the things we've already done. And yet, Father, we thank You that that Old Covenant, even to the people of that day, was just a picture to show them that You were going to provide the ultimate sacrifice, and that sacrifice was going to be Your very Son, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sin of the world. And Lord, for those of us who have entrusted our lives to Him, I pray that You would help us to appreciate afresh all that You've blessed us with, that we can come with confidence into the holy of holy places, into Your very presence by the blood of Jesus Christ, and not only gain acceptance, but be Your children. And Lord, for those who have not come into a relationship with You, I pray that today might be the day when they entrust their lives to Jesus Christ and experience the freedom of guilt in a fresh, new, real lasting, eternal relationship with you. We give you praise that it's not about us doing anything. It's all about you doing it all. And we'll give you the glory forever for that. In Jesus' name.